So we're back at it in the book of Joshua, chapter 11, as we see what the Lord has to tell us in his word this morning. As you turn there, there are three presuppositions that I want to make um, from the outset of my message today that are that are vital any time that we study the Bible, any time we open God's Word, any time we hear a sermon. But um, with texts like this and topics like this, and, and, and I'm warning you, this is a heavy topic. So if you are a guest, I picked the one topic that you probably should never pick if you were going to have a bunch of guests at your church. This is it. This is it. This is probably one of the most offensive texts and topics that you could preach on. I'm just telling you that. And so it's, it's, a, it's appropriate for us to consider these, these presuppositions this morning. First is this. It's that the purpose of all Scripture, every verse, is to reveal the triune God to us. It reveals His character. It reveals His power. It reveals His glory. In other words, friends, understand this, that the Bible isn't about you. The Bible is not man-centric. It isn't primarily about us. It isn't a collection of of moral stories. It it isn't a a collection of interesting historical facts. The Bible reveals the God of creation to us. Therefore, we should approach each passage of Scripture asking What does this text reveal about God to us? Second, the primary purpose of all Scripture is to magnify Christ's atoning work on the cross. In other words, every passage of Scripture points us to who, church? To Jesus. Therefore, we must ask, how does this text point to Jesus' atoning work on the cross? Third, God has sovereignly given us all that he wants us to know about him in this life, in his word. The Bible doesn't answer every question that we might have about God. It doesn't answer every question about his ways. It doesn't every, answer every question about his purposes that we might have. So strictly speaking, all that God wants us to know about him in this life is found where? In the Bible. Suffice it to say, when we open the Bible to a passage of Scripture, we must understand that this is a piece of information that God has sovereignly given to us about Himself so that we would know Him and that we would exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Yet, what happens, friends, when we get to texts that are difficult to understand? What happens when we get to texts that really rub up against our flesh? What happens when we meet theological concepts that really break the mold of how we think about God, His plan for the world, and our role in it? What happens when we have more questions than answers when we consider specific topics of Scripture? You see, it can be easy in such moments to dismiss theological topics altogether because we don't understand them. It can be easy to twist the plain meaning of certain passages because the text seemingly violates our preconceived framework. 
It can be easy to say, well, well, this text doesn't matter because, because my salvation doesn't rest on X topic. Yet, if we really believe that God has sovereignly chosen to reveal certain truths about Himself and the Bible, then we must earnestly declare that all Scripture is important. All doctrine is important. All theology is important. If you really want to make a college professor mad during their lecture, you might raise your hand and ask, is this going to be on the test? Is he such a question it tells the professor that you aren't really interested in engaging with what they're teaching? You're not really interested in changing or learning. You aren't actually interested in applying this knowledge to the field of study. In other words, you really don't actually care about it. Right, Miss Post? You're simply there to pass a test, to get a grade, to graduate and move on with your life. You're not there to truly learn. And oftentimes we can treat God that way. God in his infinite wisdom has given us his word for us to know him. Yet we can often disregard passages of scripture because it isn't all the gospel. Some of it is hard to understand. Some of it is hard to believe. Some of it is hard to apply. Some of it is hard to rationalize. Some of it is hard to love. Yes, it is all important. And it all reveals God to us. Today we will consider a topic that I truly believe, friends, with my whole heart is true. Yet it is a topic that rubs up against my flesh. And I have a bit of angst in preaching about it. I really do. It's a topic that to a certain extent, it can make us feel uneasy. And for many, this might be a topic that is even foreign to you. You've never, you've never heard someone teach on this or, or preach on it. And I will tell you that it is a very controversial and debated topic. It is a topic that can split churches. It is a topic that can split friendships. Yet it is a topic that it is true. It is a topic that reveals God's character and God's power. It is a doctrine that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a doctrine that all of heaven praises Jesus Christ for now and forever. Amen. And I'm speaking of the doctrine of reprobation. It is the flip side of the doctrine of election. The doctrine that highlights God's sovereignty over those who reject him. My main point is this. That God brings salvation to his people through his sovereign judgment. God brings salvation to his people through his sovereign judgment. Hopefully you've made your way to Josh, Joshua chapter 11. Please follow along as I read verses 10 through 20. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with a sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with a sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured 
and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad and the Galilee of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction, and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. As we consider our passage of scripture this morning, you might recall that the last time that we were in the book of Joshua, the Israelites were in the midst of a battle with the kings in the northern part of the land. In fact, you might recall last time that I said that this was their, their biggest battle yet. They faced the coalition of, of nations that, that teamed together in an attempt to rebel against God and to destroy God's covenant people, Israel. However, the Lord delivered Israel's enemies into their hands. The Lord desired to teach the Israelites to trust Him. Therefore, they, they burned the chariots and they hamstrung the horses. You see, He told them that they would only find true victory by following Yahweh and trusting in His strength. And that is where their courage came. That is where the strength of God's people always comes. So as we approach chapter 11, verse 10 this morning, we still find Israel finishing up these battles. We find that Joshua killed the head of this coalition, the, the king of Halor, I'm sorry, Hazor. Not only that, but they destroyed every living, breathing thing in Hazor. Verse 11 tells us that no breathing individual survived the siege of that city. Because of their wickedness, they received the judgment and the wrath of Yahweh. Verse 12, it gives us a, a summary statement of what happened. It says that Joshua took all these royal cities and put them to the sword. He devoted them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. As we consider these royal cities, we, we would be wise not to be guilty of chronological snobbery here. You see, we probably think of these ancient cities and, and assume that these were, these were mostly primitive, weak cities. However, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, by our, our modern standards, of course, these societies were more, were more technologically primitive than we are here in 2024. However, in Joshua's time, these were some of the wealthiest, most powerful, advanced cities in the world. 
Their militaries were far more advanced than Israel. They were better equipped, and they were larger than Israel's army. See, these cities, they were not slouches, friends. They were well-equipped, well-executed armies. However, what we see in the Word of God is that God alone brought them to nothing. He brought them to nothing. Because of their wickedness, they received God's wrath. Every powerful king in the ancient Near East was made to bow the knee to Yahweh. See, in in an election year, like we have this year, it is good to remember this truth, that every politician on that ballot will one day bow the knee to King Jesus. Everyone. Everyone will answer to him. They are not sovereign. They are not all-powerful. Their days are numbered. Their rule is limited in scope, in time, and in reach. And no matter how they rage against the Lord, they stand subservient to the King of Kings. Therefore, in an election year, we must not lose heart, church. Even though our government and the culture at large rages against the Lord, Jesus is king. He is not in danger of being overthrown. He is not in danger of being threatened by the most vile and corrupt politician. He sits secure, ruling and reigning from the throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And if you are in Christ, dear Christian, you win too in the end as a result. See, Yahweh's lordship was not in any way threatened by kings that raged against him. No way. Instead, these vile and evil kings, they were judged for their sin. Verse 14 tells us that the Israelites plundered their cities. All that they had built, all that they had worked for, all that they cultivated, it was gone in an instant. Their lives were a waste. Their goods went to the victor. Every last citizen in these cities, they died because they shook their fist at Yahweh. And as these cities were brought to nothing, hear me, church, I want you to understand this. God's will was accomplished. This is exactly what we see in 1115. God had commanded Joshua through the prophet Moses to devote these cities to complete destruction because of their sin. We must understand that God was divinely, sovereignly, and providentially bringing judgment to these wicked nations. And God was righteous to do so. God was completely just in bringing his wrath upon them through Joshua and the Israelites. You see, while it is is difficult for our minds and flesh to understand, we must grasp that it was good. It was good. It was praiseworthy. It was holy for God to demonstrate his holiness through judgment. God did not let sin slide. He never does. 
You might think, as you read this text, you might think, well, well, it's easy for Jewish texts such as the book of Joshua to, to classify these nations as, as wicked and pagan as the Israelites took over their land. You might make that argument. However, we need only look at the book of Deuteronomy and see that the Bible doesn't portray Israel as, in, as innocent or righteous in any sense. You see, God wasn't bringing Israel into the land because of their righteousness. I've read it many times throughout the book of Joshua, but in Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 5, we read this. The Lord says to Israel, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God was bringing them into the land for two reasons. To honor his word and to judge the wicked nations. And Israel was a benefactor of God's grace and benefited from the judgment of these pagan nations. We must understand something. We might think that the book of Joshua is just a book about how God fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham to bring his people into the promised land. And in a greater canonical sense, we, we can see Joshua as simply a story of how God fulfilled his promise to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt and bring them into the promised land. Now, this, this is certainly true in Joshua. It's absolutely true in Joshua. However, we can miss the secondary theme of the book as well. The judgment of the wicked. In the book of Joshua, God isn't only highlighting how he would save his people. He is demonstrating his holy wrath and justice as well. In fact, as we'll discuss later, God is bringing salvation to his covenant people through the judgment of the wicked. This is perhaps the main theme of Joshua more succinctly. God bringing salvation to a people through the judgment of the wicked. See, God is pleased to demonstrate his holiness through judgment. Far too often we miss this point. We are conditioned to think that God is only merciful, God is only meek, and God is only lowly. He's basically a, a really nice guy, and according to certain commercials, he really just loves to wash feet. I, I'm sure you saw the He Gets His campaign over the past few years, and especially during the Super Bowl. It just portrays Jesus as a, a really nice guy who... He makes no demands from anyone, requires nothing from anybody. He's just, he's just agreeable, non-controversial. This is how our, our culture thinks about Jesus. This is how many Christians think about Jesus. And, and I can see how many Christians believe that because the defining quality of our relationship with the Lord is grace. Amen? 
You see, grace sums up the whole relationship that Christ has with his church. Yet God is not just a God of grace. Amen. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of justice. He is a God who is holy, 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 holy. And God doesn't just actively desire to show his grace and mercy to the world. God actively and righteously desires to show his justice and his holiness and his wrath. And this is exactly what is happening in Joshua. God's glory is on display. Therefore, in eleven sixteen through 17, we see that the Lord continues to take the land on behalf of the people of Israel, and he puts the kings in these cities to death. That's what he's doing. Remember, I want us to look at a side note here. Look at 11.18. Notice something. It says that Joshua made war a long time with those kings. A long time. I, I think that this is important. God was bringing his people into the land. He, he would bless them, and to do so, it, it would require that God alone would drive out their enemies. It would require that, that God alone would work. And God promised to do so. And he did. He fulfilled his promise to the Israelites in his timing. Not their timing necessarily. In other words, God didn't do this in one fell swoop. He didn't, just, he didn't just kick all of them out of the promised land all at once. He didn't bring his promises to pass all at once in one battle. This took place over a long period of time. But yet God was faithful to his promises. You see, Dr. Dale Davis notes that this is how God typically worked in our lives. This is typically how he works over long periods of time. He is always working in our lives. Do you realize that, Christian? That God is always working in your life. He is working miracles. He is working for our good, and he is working for his glory. Yet he works on his time, not ours. He works on his speed, not ours. He works in ways and at a speed that require us to trust him. He works in a speed that demands that we walk by faith and not by sight, Christians. Yet he always is working. So do you find yourself discouraged in your struggle with sin, Christian? Do you find yourself discouraged, wishing you were a godlier person, that you keep succumbing to the same, whatever it is? Know this. That if you are in Christ, the Lord has promised that he will sanctify you and make you more like Jesus. He has promised that he will do so, and he is faithful to bring it to completion. Yet he will do so in a way that requires you to walk by faith and not according to the flesh. He will work in a way that draws your heart to him for providence in the areas where you wander into sin. God's will for your life is that you would walk by faith. It doesn't make you like Christ in just one fell swoop and then you're done. Do you find yourself worried about the salvation of a loved one? Maybe your children, maybe a spouse, maybe a, a co-worker. 
Sometimes the Lord does bring revival in one fell swoop. Sometimes. But most of the time, God works over long periods of time. He works in ways that call us to share the gospel and to live out the gospel over and over and over and over again. We never know who God's elect are, but we know that we are called to faithfully share the gospel. And most of the time, people come to know the Lord over long periods of time where Christians share the gospel over and over and over again. Do you find yourself discouraged with the state of our church? I have. There are moments where I look at our church and I, and I wish that we were more biblical in certain areas, more sanctified in certain areas. I pray that God is continuing to make us a Christ-exalting church. Yet I know that we are a church that will always be in need of biblical reform until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. I also know that the Lord doesn't typically change a church in one message. It doesn't change the church in one fell swoop on Wednesday night. It doesn't typically even bring us to where we would ultimately like to be in a year. You see, the Lord tends to work slowly over time in ways where only he gets the glory. That's how God works. Imagine if, just, just imagine that, that if, if the church was simply on fire after every message that I preached. Just, just imagine it. You see, how easy would it be for me to get the glory? We just need, we just need more messages from Brian. That's, that's really what we need. You see, most of the time, I know this. You don't have to tell me. You forget my messages 15 minutes after I preach them. I know that. Yet, God accomplishes his purpose every time the word of God is preached. And it's not because of me or Matt or Doug or others. It's the Lord God who works every single Sunday, whether we realize it or not. Every time the word of God is open, whether we realize it or not, God is accomplishing his purposes. The word does not return void. He is working in a way that only he gets the glory. He is working in a time where only he gets the glory. He is working in a way that demands that we walk by faith and trust him over long periods of time. Come to terms with that, Christian, or you will find yourself very frustrated in the Christian life. You see, sometimes it is hard to walk by faith. And in fact, in certain seasons, it can feel impossible to be faithful. You ever been there? You feel like it's been hard just to be, to be faithful in certain seasons. You see, in seasons of health trials, marital strife, when money is tight, when your kids are rebelling, when life is clearly more than you can handle, it can feel impossible to walk by faith. You see, joyful obedience in such seasons, it can seem unattainable. But see, God, Christian, calls us to fight. He calls us to walk by faith. He calls us to trust him. So how did Joshua, over long periods of time, fight and fight and fight and fight? How did Joshua stay faithful for the long haul? How did he continue to go to battle for a long time? 
Friend, he, he steadfastly believed in the sovereignty of God. That's how. Christian, hear me. Your ability to walk faithfully in this life is directly proportional to the degree that you trust the sovereignty of God. Joshua knew this. Joshua knew above all else that God would accomplish his purposes to the fullest extent. He believed that. This is very clear when we consider verses verses 19 through 20. Verse 19 tells us that there wasn't a single city in the whole land that made peace with Israel except for who? The Gibeonites. The Gibeonites, you you might recall, they, they didn't simply come out and ask for mercy. They weren't pursuing covenant relationship with Yahweh. They deceived the Israelites. They were simply trying to prolong their earthly life. The Gibeonites aren't aren't necessarily portrayed as exemplary here. Joshua is just stating a fact. The Gibeonites' earthly lives were spared. Yet, not another single inhabitant of these kings' cities were spared. They were all taken in battle. Why? The answer is found in verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Why didn't a single city turn to Yahweh? Because God sovereignly chose to harden their hearts. God's will for them was for them to be devoted to destruction. God's will for them was to be objects of his wrath. God's will for them was not to receive mercy, but to be destroyed. In fact, the text doesn't say that the nations hardened their hearts. The text tells us that God Almighty hardened their hearts. It doesn't say that God foreknew that they would harden their hearts, and therefore God hardened their hearts. It says that God chose to harden their hearts. I don't know how this makes you feel right now. I know how it makes me feel. According to my flesh, it makes me feel uneasy. It it provokes a thousand plus questions in my mind. And my initial take from my earthly wisdom is that this feels unjust. It feels unfair. It seems disturbing and offensive to my flesh. That's how it feels. But the reality is it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't. Because this is true. The word of God is true. It is not based on how I define it as true, but how God defines it. And the text tells us this, that God hardened them. That's what it says. In fact, the Bible is full of people, kings, and nations that God in his sovereignty, he chose to harden 
for the purpose of His glory. See, one might consider how God hardened Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus. You might say, well, hold on, Brian, hold on. I've, I've read the story in Exodus. God hardened Pharaoh's heart only after Pharaoh hardened his heart. You haven't read Exodus 8.15, Brian. Well, you might understand that before Exodus 8.15, before Moses was stepping foot back into Egypt, the Lord told Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. It wasn't just foreknowledge. It wasn't a response to Pharaoh. This was God's sovereign choice in order to bring glory to himself. God's purpose for Pharaoh was to harden his heart. God's purpose for Pharaoh was judgment. There are many other examples in the word of God where, where God sovereignly works through sinners to bring glory to himself, where God is the primary acting agent. Consider God's use of Joseph's brothers to bring him into slavery. Who brought Joseph into slavery? According to Joseph. Well, they both did, but who is the ultimate acting agent? God. Joseph says this at the end of the book of Genesis, that they meant it for what? His brothers meant it for what? Evil, but God meant it. He meant it. God meant it. God did it. He really meant it, but he meant it for what? For good. God was the acting agent. God did not have a hands-off approach. God sovereignly willed Joseph to be sold into slavery at the wicked hands of sinners. We might also consider God's sovereign use of pagan Syria and Babylon to bring judgment upon the Israelites. Only for God to bring sovereign judgment upon Syria and Babylon for their sin. We, we can consider God's sovereign decree that, Jesus, or that Judas would betray Jesus. And friends, we could go on and on and on and on because God's sovereignty over sinners in this life is chock full in the pages of Scripture. You see, in the Bible you will find God's sovereign hand at work as he works providentially to bring glory to himself even as God uses sinners' sin to do so. so. The question is, how should we think about God's sovereignty over those reserved for judgment? Is there any scripture that we can, that we can turn to that sheds any light on how we should think about this? Or should we just kind of sit here and pray and go home? I believe there's a passage of Scripture that gives us the answer to that, and this is where we'll finish this morning in the book of Romans chapter 9. Please turn there, because I, I want you to actually read this. In Romans chapter 9, Verse 6, 
we read this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. You see here Paul's making an argument. He begins chapter 9 declaring his desire for all of his Jewish brothers and sisters to be saved. And, and when one considers how Yahweh exclusively worked through Israel in the Old Testament and made promise after promise to them, one might come to the conclusion that God's promises failed. He might come to that conclusion. He might come to the conclusion that, that God wasn't able to save his covenant people, that he was not able to ever draw them to himself because time and time again they would reject the Lord. Specifically, think about the time of Jesus and, and, and the time of Paul. The, the, Jews, the, the Jews overwhelmingly rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Paul's ultimately going to get to the point in Romans 11 where all of Israel will be saved, but he's, he's pointing to this time and place here. Therefore, Romans 9 through 6, or Romans 9, 6, Paul says, the word of God has not failed. It hasn't failed. God's plans have not failed. His promises are true. He has fulfilled them, and he will fulfill them. You see, the promise, the, the, the problem isn't with the word of God. The promise isn't with the promises of God. The problem is with our understanding of it at times. Paul says that God has always been faithful to his covenant people. Always. Yet not all Israel will receive the true blessing of Abraham because they are not all true sons of Abraham. Paul says, you, you are not blessed only because of your ethnicity. How is one blessed? Keep reading. Verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau, I hated. You see, verse 10 refers back to the book of Genesis where Rebekah gave birth to who? Esau and, and Jacob. From an earthly perspective, Esau, as the firstborn son, he would legally have the birthright. He would uniquely receive his father's blessing. However, we ultimately know that Jacob ended up being the son of the promise the one who received the blessing. And the question is, why? Why? Well, you might say, well, it's because of Esau. Because Esau sold his birthright. That's why. He was hungry. He wanted a sandwich. And from an earthly perspective, that might be true. Esau did play a role in it. Yet, Paul gives us the real reason. Because of God's sovereign choice of Jacob. Paul pulls back the curtain to a time before Esau made a decision. Back to a time before he was even conceived, before he was born. 
and directs the reader to the promise made to Rebecca in Genesis 25 that the older would serve the younger. You see, God foreordained that he would bless Jacob. God foreordained that he would give Esau over to the flesh. Why? Verse 11 tells us, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. You see, friends, God was working all things in accordance to his will so that he alone would receive the glory. See, God is a jealous God who will not share his glory with anyone, no matter what we think about it. You know, you might not like the doctrine of election. You might not like the doctrine of reprobation, but that doesn't make it untrue. We must understand that these doctrines are very important to God. So we continue. Romans 9.14 What shall we say then? What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, by no means. See, if you're following Paul's logic here, you'll, you'll understand his question. He asks, is there injustice on God's part? Maybe that's what you're thinking. This feels unjust. This feels unsettling. This doesn't feel right. That God would choose some and God would sovereignly not choose others. It doesn't feel right. It feels unjust. And if you're, if you're understanding that and thinking that, then you're following Paul's logic. That's why he writes this. You see, it might seem that way from an earthly perspective. We might sit here and think, well, poor Esau. Poor Esau never had a chance. You see, God's sovereignty, it doesn't seem fair. It seems unjust. But Paul says, by no means is God unjust. He is not unjust. So we can glean from the scriptures that even though God is sovereign, completely sovereign, all sovereign, he is still acting in a manner justly, even when we don't understand it, even if we don't agree with it even. See, the Bible tells us this, friends, that there is no injustice in God. There is no sin in God. And everything God does is righteous. And we read in Romans 9, 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my, my name might be proclaimed in, in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Friends, we see that salvation is not a result of man's decision, but on God's sovereign will. God's mercy is not a result of man's desire, but of God's sovereign will will. He will have mercy on whomever desires. No, he will have mercy on whomever he pleases. He will have compassion on whomever he pleases. Now, most of us would agree with this point wholeheartedly. Amen. Praise the Lord for his sovereignty and his sovereign grace in our lives. 
You see, we, we see God's goodness. We see his holiness. We see his righteousness in his choice to save some. Yet what about the rest? What about Pharaoh? Romans 9 tells us that, that God raised up Pharaoh that he would show his what through to Pharaoh? That he would show his power through Pharaoh. God brought Pharaoh to power and hardened his heart for the purpose of demonstrating his sovereign, good, holy power throughout the whole earth. That's what the Bible tells us. You see, God's glory shined the brightest against the backdrop of Pharaoh's rebellion towards Yahweh. Is this not what happened? Have we, have we not seen this time and, and time again in the book of Joshua? That these pagan nations were well aware of what God did to Egypt and how the Lord delivered the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. These pagan nations were in dread of Israel and in awe of Yahweh's power because of what he did in hardening Pharaoh's heart. It works. This is, this is how the scripture unfolds. Then we see in Romans 9, 19. If you're still following Paul's logic, you would ask this. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? Or who can resist his will? Maybe you're thinking that. What's Paul say? You're not going to like the answer, but we should. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Why? Why, God? Why does he still find fault? How does God still find fault in Pharaoh? How does he find fault in the pagan nations in the promised land that God foreordained that he would harden their hearts? If God hardens individuals himself, how does he still find fault in such people? Was it not God's decision? Was God not sovereign in this? So we must understand that even though God is completely sovereign and working all things in this world for his glory alone, the Bible is still very, very clear, hear me Christians, that we are responsible for our sin. We are. And we can look at Romans 1, 24 through 28, and we read this, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, there was a lack of acknowledging God that coincided with God's giving them over to their debased mind. These God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility, they're compatible. 
They're compatible. Man is responsible for his sin. God is sovereign over it. We sin because we desire to sin. We sin because we often love sin. Apart from Christ, we are truly and actually dead in our sin. And this is our chief desire apart from Christ. The Bible is clear, friends. Man is truly responsible for his sin. Each and every one of us will actually give a genuine account before God and answer for our lives in an authentic manner. And our answer cannot and will not be, God made me do it. Or God, if you wanted me to stop sinning, you would make me stop sinning. So my sin, God, it is your fault. The biggest question is how do man's responsibility and God's sovereignty work together? That's the question. That, if you probably boil it down to the angst that is in, with, in, in all of our hearts right now, that is what it boils down to. But the Bible has no angst at all. Paul has no angst at all. God is completely sovereign. Man is completely responsible. And one day in in eternity future, God might allow us to understand how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fit together in God's economy. But in this life, the only answer we have is that it remains a very profound and holy mystery. Therefore, we must lean on what the Bible says about God and not lean on our own preconceived notions or supposed wisdom. And I know sitting here saying that it's a mystery doesn't feel gratifying to you, but it is. And that is where we must trust the goodness of God and trust his sovereign plan. We must understand this, as Paul says this, that God does not owe us an answer. He does not owe us all knowledge of his will, all knowledge of his economy. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us an answer. In fact, if you've read the book of Job and you know when all of the calamity that came upon Job's life where Satan kept attacking him over and over and over, what's, and, and God says, Job finally says, God, why did all of this happen? You know what God says? He says, Job, who are you to question me? You are not the one who created all things. And you might think that that is a, a compassionless answer. But God, when he reveals his sovereign hand over everything, that, that, is, the most, that, that is the most loving thing God can reveal to us. That he is sovereign and that he is good. We should find peace knowing that we serve a good and sovereign God. We should consider Paul's words in Romans 9.20, that creatures such as us have no right to question God. We have no right. We have no right to make accusations against God. We have no right to insinuate certain things about God. 
We have no right to point the finger at God. We have no right to blame God for any ounce of sin in this world. We have no right to ask God, why did you make me this way? We can only reflect on God as he is revealed to us in the word of God and bow our knees in adoration. That's our option. God, in his role as God, has every right to do all that he pleases. We must understand, as I've said earlier, that the Bible is a God-centric book. It is not a man-centric book. It doesn't take our feelings into account. It exists to make much of Christ and his work. It portrays God as all-powerful and righteously able to make some people for honorable use and some people for dishonorable use. Some vessels are for dishonorable use. God created them to display his wrath to the world. He created them to highlight his justice and his holiness. Yet these individuals, according to the word of God, are responsible for their sin. Therefore God, as Romans 9.22 says, that he bears with them patiently. They will one day experience God's wrath forever, and God will be glorified as judge on that day. Yet God also created vessels for honorable use. He has created some to display his grace to the world. He created them to exalt his mercy and his love. These individuals are not responsible for their lofty position in Christ. They are as earthly wicked as the vessels of wrath, but God in his grace chose to save them and to change them in Jesus Christ. And we must understand that it is God's mercy that shines all the brighter against his, the backdrop of his justice and his wrath. Do you see the logical flow of Romans 9, 22 through 23? The vessels of destruction were created for the distinct purpose of making known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That is his purpose for the vessels of wrath is to more highly exalt his mercy for vessels of mercy. And friends, this is how God works throughout the whole Bible. He gives salvation to his people through the judgment of another. He allows Adam and Eve to live and not die through the death of the animal sacrifice he made for them after they sinned. He allowed Noah to live as he judged the wicked world. He brought Israel salvation through the judgment of the Egyptians. Then we make our way to Joshua and see that the only reason that they were brought into the land was because the Lord was judging the people of the land. Israel benefited because the pagan nations were indeed being judged by the Lord. Yet all of these examples point to one great event where God's people experience through the preordained judgment of another, the cross of Christ. See, the most incredible display of God's sovereign judgment was not given to sinful man, but the righteous son of man. 
And the biggest question of the Bible isn't how could a good God predestined evil man to receive his wrath. The biggest and most perplexing question in the Bible is how could a just God predestine his righteous and good son to receive the full wrath of humanity? See, this question should perplex us. If I want you to leave here this morning, forget, for, for, for almost forget those vessels of destruction for a moment. The question that should perplex us far more than the mind-melting confusion of trying to figure out God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is why would God choose to save us through the judgment of his son? Why would Jesus offer his life to pay a debt that wasn't his? That's the perplexing question. Friends, the only true injustice in the entire Bible was when God took our sin for us. That is the only place where injustice happens in the entire Bible. Period. And if you are in Christ, it is because God chose you in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. And God's ultimate purpose in this world is to bring glory through the preordained death of his son so that his chosen children would be recipients of his mercy and that we would find joy in Jesus Christ forever. As we close, you might be, you might be asking, saying, Brian, well, that's some interesting theology. would make an interesting paper, but what do I do with it? How do I apply this to my everyday life? Four ways, quickly. One, God's sovereign grace in our lives should result in a deep gratitude for Christ. Dear Christian, if you're in Christ, he chose you. He chose to give you grace. In the midst of struggle in this life, if we have Christ, we have everything. God has invited us into his family God has allowed us to experience the deepest joy one can know in this world. Not the joy of marriage, not the joy of parenthood, not the joy of wealth, not the joy of fame, but the joy of knowing Christ. Christian, God's sovereign plan, his sovereign plan to choose you, it should result in everlasting joy. Point two, application two. God's sovereignty in this world should result in our steadfastness to evangelize. Many people think that God's sovereignty is the biggest detriment to evangelism. And the fact is that nothing could be further from the truth. Paul didn't think that. And now, now, now that you've read what Romans 9 a bit, I want you to go turn to Romans 10 this week. You see, even though Paul acknowledges that God is sovereign over those he chooses and, and sovereign over those that he hardens. In Romans 10, we, we come to the truth that, that he doesn't save individuals without the preaching of the gospel. It's a beautiful mystery. But I'll sum up what J.I. Packer thought when he said that there is no greater motivator to evangelism than trusting in the sovereignty of God because we know that God has promised that he would save some people. Do you realize that? God has promised that he would save some. God's sovereignty isn't a detriment to evangelism. 
It is the anchor of it. It is the foundation of it. It is the biggest motivator of it. Christian, God's sovereign plan should result in evangelism. Three, God's sovereignty in this world should result in our repentance. Your sin is not God's fault. You will give an account for it. When we see how seriously God takes sin, that he sent his own son to pay for ours, we must not take sin lightly. We must not identify as those who stand to receive God's wrath. Christian, God's sovereign plan should result in our repentance. Four, God's sovereignty in this world should result in heartfelt worship. We worship a sovereign God. If you consider Revelation 4 and 5's picture of the throne of heaven where Jesus sits, and, and you see heavenly host praising the name of Jesus Christ all day, every day, never ending, holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb who was slain, and they're praising Him for paying the penalty of sin that wasn't even theirs. How much more should we worship the Lord God who paid our sin? You see, we must not let the heavenly host out worship us, church. Jesus paid our debt, not theirs. Jesus made us his own, not them. Jesus made us his bride, not them. And the angels in heaven long to experience what you and I have experienced in Christ. Do you realize that, friend? And only because of God's sovereignty. Christian, God's sovereign plan should result in true worship of Jesus Christ. There's no greater comfort, and I'll end with this, there's no greater comfort in the Christian life than knowing that God is sovereignly working all things, including evil, for His glory and for our good.